Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. What does the chaos of the last week in Russia tell us about its armed forces? We hear from the former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Lord Richards. There's no real evidence yet that the Russian armed forces are in any sense sort of mortally wounded. Germany says it's planning to keep 4,000 troops permanently in Lithuania to shore up NATO's eastern flank. Would it push other NATO members away because someone else is carrying the burden now in a more increased manner, so to speak? Our defence expert Mike Clark gives us his assessment. And Fat Albert flies off into the sunset. If we look at every operation that the RAF has ever taken part in, uh, the Hercules is largely the first in and the last out. The last flight of the RAF's Hercules. Sitrep with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Mike, we're looking this week at the impact of the chaos in Russia on European defence and security. But first, the so-called aborted march for justice on Moscow by the Wagner group of mercenaries. It seemed to take everyone by surprise, or did it? Well, uh, not really, because there were rumours on the Wednesday. This, the, the march for justice began on Saturday and, and Wagner took uh, uh, Rostov on Don on Friday, holding it hostage. Two days previously, some of the oligarchs knew something was happening. And it now turns out that the FSB, the Russian intelligence service, and Western intelligence services also knew something was happening. So this was not just a spontaneous act. There's quite a lot more behind this, which is now beginning to emerge as the days go on. Well, in what might have been an attempt to distract attention from Russia's problems at home, a missile attack on a pizza restaurant in Ukraine's eastern city of Kramatorsk killed at least 12 people, including children. Friend of SITREP, the Daily Telegraph's Colin Freeman, would have been eating there had he not been called out on an urgent work assignment. And Colin joins us now from Kramatorsk. Uh, Colin, good to speak to you. Glad you're all right. Um, What happened? Yeah, we were... um in a restaurant called the Ria Pizza Restaurant in uh, the city of Kramatorsk, which is a, I suppose you could call it a frontline city. It's in the Donbass area and it's the main town from which um, soldiers go to the, the, the forward operating bases uh, around the Donbass region. It's a very popular eatery. We had sat down there for a, um, a bite to eat around seven o'clock on Tuesday evening. Um, I now know these timings rather well because I've poured over them. At 7.02pm, we got a call from uh, someone we'd been trying to get for an interview um, saying that he was available on the other side of Kramatorsk um, for the next hour. So we shot off, um, uh, abandoning um, uh, our our table at the restaurant. And then while we were um, over on the other side of town doing this interview, at about half past seven, um, we heard a very loud bang of a missile. Um, and uh, um, we later discovered um, that that was the restaurant getting hit. Um, and uh, when we got there to check out what had happened, the place was an absolute scene of carnage. And uh, I think 12 people had been killed and something like 60 injured. And uh, when we looked at this sort of, you know, sea of smouldering wreckage where they were pulling bodies out and uh, and people very badly injured, we were sort of thinking, um, blimey, that could have been us. We could actually see the spot where our table had been. And um, I don't think there's any doubt that had we been in there 
we would have been among those, uh, among the casualties. Well, it's lovely to talk to you today. And just to explain to listeners that the banging we heard in the background, that's that's daily life continuing in your, the place where you're speaking to us from. Um, Russia has said in response that they don't hit civilians, only military targets, but children have been killed here as well. Uh, yes. So um, there's been a lot of talk about whether this place was or was not used by um, uh, Ukrainian soldiers. The answer is yes, it is. Um, but then so is just about every other civilian haunt in uh, in Ukraine. Every restaurant, every cafe you go into has got soldiers in. Um, uh, and that's particularly true of Kramatorsk because it's a town close to the front lines. Um, what is perhaps, should perhaps also be borne in mind though that you know like any civilian place this this place also had a lot of civilians in as well um while we were watching um the immediate aftermath of the bombing um i was stood next to a woman who was saying that her friend had taken his two teenage daughters there for um uh, you know a, a meal for some reason and um she was worried that they might have died and sure enough um the following day we discovered that two um uh Two twins, two 14-year-old girls were indeed among the victims. So, yeah, um, there are soldiers in there, but there's also civilians. And Michael Clark has been listening to what you've been saying. Um, Mike? Yes, um, Colin, there, there are a lot of reports that there were two explosions, two loud explosions at that time. Is, is that what you heard? You, you yes, said an right. explosion. There, 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 was, there was two, one after another. We understand that the other one hit a village outside of Kramatorsk somewhere. Um, don't actually know where. Uh, but, uh, I mean, there doesn't seem any doubt to me that this restaurant was actually hit directly. I mean, it was mm. a, from looking at the scene and speaking to people who know a bit more about munitions and artillery and things like that than I do, it seems very much likely that this this place was deliberately targeted yeah. um, as opposed to just, you know, a missile that was perhaps intercepted and happened to land on that particular spot when 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 missiles or missile fragments land after being intercepted as i understand it they don't tend to land with that same sort of explosive force that this one did colin it's been great having the time to talk to you today thank you so much for joining us hope you stay safe that's colin freeman from the daily telegraph well, the situation in Russia and Ukraine raises challenges for NATO countries which border Russia and its Kremlin-backed ally, Belarus. This week, Germany said it's ready to keep 4,000 troops permanently in Lithuania once the infrastructure is in place. Germany already leads NATO's multinational battle group there, a reinforced battalion of some 1,000 troops as part of NATO's enhanced forward presence. Here's Lithuania's President, Gitanas Naseda. We are most thankful to our German colleagues for their long-term commitment to Lithuania's security, the security of the entire region, and their demonstrated leadership in this domain. However, it's important to not stop where we are and continue working on boosting our deterrence and defence. Well, Sebastian Schulter is a German defence analyst and a Navy Reserve officer. Uh, Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us. Would this work in addition to the current deployment or instead of it? Thank you for having me. That's a big question, isn't it? My understanding is, since this seems to be a bilateral statement and bilateral announcement, that this is coming on top of established NATO-enhanced uh, forward presence uh, infrastructure and uh, commitments. 
And why do you think the government has moved now to agree to Vilnius's request? Is the timing of the announcement a co coincidence? Having watched the news, as, as, as you probably have, and uh, most, most of our listeners here, I would venture to say that this is definitely connected to, to the happenings in the past days in, in, in Russia in the sense that uh, I'm sure there have been talks about this before, but this has certainly been an, an accelerator to the uh, decision that has been made public now. How easily or not will the German armed forces be able to respond to this agreement? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? German armed forces, or the German army in particular, is, of course, in its, in its own sphere of transformation, um, so to speak, with the start of the uh, Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. And um, this is something that is being uh, loaded on top of, the, of, of what they're doing uh, anyways in terms of their, their structure and restructuring and all the challenges that they, that they currently have and are facing. So um, this is going on top and it cannot be under understated that uh, there is a different kind of challenge or, or a sophisticated challenge in the sense that it is absolutely not not clear where this brigade or the personnel for this particular brigade we're talking about 4000 personnel strong here this is coming from and i understand from my contacts with the uh, german defense establishment that they are currently in the process of finding that out. The UK continues to lead the NATO battle group in Estonia. What do you think will be the impact of Germany's move on the UK and other countries? I think we have to acknowledge that if this happens and if it happens as announced, this will have uh, or could have some sort of displacement uh, effect or a magnetic effect uh, e either way. So in, in the sense that would it push other NATO members away because someone else is carrying the burden now in a more increased manner, so to speak? Or would it act as, an, as a magnet to draw more support in? And that question will be answered domestically in, in Canada and in the UK, uh, Canada being the framework nation for Latvia. And I think this will be looked at very, very, very hard in terms of actual force structure and force availability in these two countries. But I do hope in the common sense or combined security in, in Europe and for our countries that this rather serves as a magnet for increased security rather than a displacement effect. Sebastian Schulter, good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Well, earlier I asked the former Chief of the Defence Staff and a former Commander-in-Chief Land Forces, General Lord Richards, for his reaction to Germany's plans. I'd, I'd like to see it properly coordinated and orchestrated uh, by NATO um, uh, rather than, and I'm assuming that that announcement uh, is just an early indicator of what NATO uh, and its new strategic concept will be about. Um, but that's the sort of thing um, that um, I think all NATO nations uh, are going to have to do. And, you know, the British army is very small at the moment and it would probably find it difficult to keep a brigade permanently in somewhere like, say, Estonia or Latvia. And therefore, yes. you know, I think ours should be more of a reinforcement and operational level manoeuvre role, but not necessarily a ground holding role, if that's what the Germans are thinking of uh, in somewhere like Lithuania. 
Uh, Mike, the government has said that it's already providing significant commitment to Estonia. The UK is leading a multinational battle group there with around 900 British personnel rotating on a continuous basis. And the MOD says it holds the balance of a brigade at high readiness in the UK. So it doesn't sound like there's going to be much movement for change. Uh, no, and there's no uh, appetite for that, I think, in the Ministry of Defence or on the front bench of the uh, the government at the moment. The problem is, you can say all you like about high readiness units back in the UK, and I think it's two rifles at the moment who are performing that high readiness availabilities in the UK. I think that's what it is now. But you can say what you like about that. The fact is, troops on the ground make a difference. The visual um, certainty that there are forces there. And when you're thinking about security in relation to Russia and Belarus, Believe me, tangible assets really count. You know, they, they, they're not terribly impressed by arrangements and things on paper. They're impressed by what they see in front of them. So um, I have to say this, uh, the arrangements we've made, you know, doubling the size of the battle groups or doubling the size of the presence and then, and then withdrawing half of it um, didn't really convince anybody. And I don't think it's a very sustainable position for the government to take. Well, the head of the army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, said this week at a Rusi defence conference that Russia will remain a threat and the British military must be ready to respond. No matter how this war ends, and it must be through a Ukrainian victory, I believe the Russian threat will remain. Despite setbacks, Moscow's intent has been revealed to the world, and this will be a generational struggle. It's one we must arm ourselves for. It's one we must be ready for. Well, let's return to General Lord Richards, the former Chief of the Defence Staff. I asked him what recent events meant for the battlefield in Ukraine. Well, as all the military people listening will know well, um, first reports normally aren't true. And I'd say in this uh, sense that it's still playing out. It should have weakened the resolve morale of the Russian armed forces, but might quickly come back to that. And I think it will raise further the morale of the Ukrainian forces. But there's no real evidence yet that the Russian armed forces um, are in any sense sort of mortally wounded by what happened in the last few days. Um, uh, Wagner was an important part of their army uh, on the ground, but actually a relatively small part. Um, and although the Ukrainians continue to attack in this uh, much vaunted counteroffensive, which I doubt has yet got fully into gear, but nevertheless has certainly been grinding on for a number of weeks, um, they are not making, we're told, uh, any great progress in terms of the operational level of penetration everyone is uh, hoping and and many are predicting. I should just say, uh, if I may, Kate, that I think a lot of commentators, a lot of military people have been somewhat guilty of underestimating the Russian armed forces for a number of months. They did not uh, distinguish themselves uh, military or in many other ways, of course, uh, early on. Uh, but history tells us that they always learn their lessons and don't go away in a hurry and they'll take a lot of pain. And I think um, because we have signaled for so long, we, the West and the Ukrainians, have signaled so, for so long what is happening uh, in 
uh, Ukraine today in terms of this uh, counteroffensive. The Russians had a long time to prepare for it, um, and they're very good in defence. So mm. uh, I wouldn't write the Russians off yet, uh, albeit that what's happened will have not done their morale much good and should have raised morale of the Ukrainians, which is always to the good, obviously. So where do you think the mutiny leaves the wider Russian armed forces and their chain of command? Well, I suspect um, it doesn't have much impact on it, certainly not in the short term. Uh, they were, uh, although to some degree incorporated into the Russian armed forces, they were not completely so and were not viewed as such by uh, by the Russian armed forces and by the uh, senior commanders, which is why uh, a lot of this came about. So I suspect that they'll shrug it off. Uh, certainly that will be what their, uh, uh, their commanders will be wanting to do. And as I said, over the last few days since the mutiny occurred, um, unless something happens, which it could in the next few days, I think uh, the Russian armed forces um, are pretty well set to absorb the Ukrainian counteroffensive and the skill set required of the Ukrainians to break through the Russian lines laid in considerable depth with lots of guile and cunning um, will be huge and uh, I think a challenge that any NATO nation would find equally difficult. And are you concerned about the impact of the Wagner leader and some of his troops going to live in Belarus in terms of destabilising surrounding countries? I'm not too worried. I think it's over-egged the threat to NATO countries. Um, it suits uh, the Western and Ukrainian message to play that up, and I quite understand it. And maybe downstream there is some sort of threat there, but I personally never thought that the Russians were, you know, next stop was going to be Warsaw sort of thing. Um, what I think is an interesting thing to speculate, and it is pure speculation, is that um, this whole event, which just looks a little bit too neat in many respects, not in all respects, which is where the argument might break down, that um, this could be some uh, terribly clever form of uh, Russian maskerovka or deception operation. You've got Wagner now uh, to the north of Kiev um, and, um, you know, perhaps gathering his troops. Is it beyond the possibility that, um, you know, they start to advance due south? Uh, if mm. not to take Kiev, but uh, certainly to cause the Ukrainians uh, another headache at a time when they don't need it because we want them to be concentrating on what they're doing in the south uh, of the country and to the east. What does this episode tell us about leadership? Prigozhin had no prior military experience, was known for his cruelty, but obviously had some loyalty from his men. He was welcomed when he when he turned up in Russia. And then we've got all the reports coming out now about the infighting of, of senior generals in the Russian military. Yes, I'm sure there are. That's a very good question, Kate. Um, I mean, I, I've often said to be a good leader does not necessarily require a great uh, technical skill set. Um, you know, a good um, member of a, a, a member of a gang can be a very effective leader of that gang. Whether he could command, uh, in this case, you know, large-scale military operations is a completely different factor or issue. So I think he. He's demonstrated that uh, the fact that he's, I think, started life as a, a chef um, 
uh, doesn't mean that you can't be in a rabble-rousing sense instinctively uh, 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 quite an inspirational within his own sort of cru cruel domain. Uh, he's a, you, you, you can't be a, uh, an effective leader. But I don't think that makes him into an effective commander. Um, he's obviously learned many of the necessary skill sets uh, on the hoof over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, but his uh, misjudgment over President Putin and the response uh, on this one uh, shows that he hasn't matured fully, shall we say, certainly at the operational strategic level. General Lord Richards, great to speak to you. Thank you for your time. Mike, what are your thoughts on Russia's command and control structure? Uh, well, it's not very coherent. I mean, on the ground, the Russian forces are quite divided, really, between the Army, Navy, Air Force don't cooperate terribly well. And then within the Army, there's quite a big difference between the, the, the contract soldiers, the professionals, and the conscripts, who are pretty hapless. Then there are the militias, the Donetsk People's, uh, People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. They're not very well regarded, and they seem to fight with each other. And then there's all the warlords, I mean, Prigozhin with the Wagner Group, of course, but there are more than 20 different private military companies operating in Ukraine. And um, Shogu, the defense minister, his company is called Patriot. So there's a number of, of private military companies all around in, in the area. And then at the very top in Moscow, there's something very strange going on because uh, Garazimov is the chief of the general staff, which is really the chief of all of the defense forces. He's supposed to be in charge of this particular operation. And he has three deputies. I mean, one is Sergei Sorovikin, um, who's also head of the Air Force. Another is um, Oleg Salyakov, who's uh, running the ground forces in Ukraine. And then Alexei Kim, who's the deputy chief of the general staff. And so Gerasimov, who's supposed to be commanding the whole thing, hasn't been seen at all since this, this attempted coup began. And Sorovikin, who one of his three deputies, is reportedly been arrested because he seemed to have been connected with whatever this coup turned out to be. So both on the ground and in Moscow, there is a sort of a sense of incoherence about this whole command structure. So it's not actually affecting the fighting of the counteroffensive, but it might alter the direction of it. Is that right? Yes. And I think the Ukrainians know that and they've pushed much harder this week, although they're still in the preliminary phases. They're pulling the Russians sideways and they've opened up a new a new front. Um, they've crossed the Dnieper River. So they've opened up a, a, a sort of a bridgehead, which now looks to be quite a big bridgehead. The Russians have counterattacked it and failed in that counterattack. This is on the other side of the river from Kherson and uh, at Novokovka. And so you can see what the Ukrainians are doing and they're having more success now in thinning the Russians out. They still haven't launched the two thirds of their force which they're holding back they've only committed about one between a quarter and a third of their forces and the big nine as they call it the nine new brigades with new equipment and new people they are still waiting to be told where to go and and you know where to try to break through we'll see them come forward sometime i, I guess in the not too distant future news discussions and analysis this is sitrap this is a sound that always made people look to the skies But the mighty Hercules goes into retirement this week from service with the RAF. The OC of 47 Squadron, Wing Commander James Schoberg, was the pilot who had the honour of the last flight. It's a really amazing moment to be in, in the middle of this historic time. It's a real honour to be here as Officer Commanding 47 Squadron at this point in the Hercules history. It's a moment tinged with sadness for many of us. 
but I do take great solace in the fact that the people of the Air Mobility Force are going to take the spirit of the Hercules forward into the future and will do really well, I'm sure. The first variant of the Hercules entered service in 1966. Since then, its flexibility and adaptability have made the aircraft the backbone of the RAF's ability to move equipment and personnel around the world. One man who knows more than most about the Fat Albert, as it's affectionately known, is Scotty Bateman. He started his career on the type as air loadmaster and then moved to the cockpit as co-pilot and eventually captain on 47 Squadron. He's writing a book on the Hercules and I asked him what made it's such a successful aircraft, not only for the RAF, but for air forces around the world. I think the Hercules is the Swiss army knife of air transporters, and that's really what's made it a great success. It's done everything from carrying troops in and out of the battlefield. It's an air ambulance. It's a Pickford's van with wings is <laughs> how it's been described to me. And I think that really fits it. It, it does everything and moves everything. And what do you think was the Hercules' finest hour? I think if we were to look back to the Falklands, it, Falklands was a, a huge turning point for the Hercules in its uh, development in terms of air-to-air -air refueling capability, night vision goggles started back in the Falklands campaign. The Gulf War, uh, the Hercules was pivotal throughout the Gulf War, not only in special forces delivery, but in delivery of stores to the theatre, and then obviously more recently in Afghanistan and Syria. We've seen it delivering not just humanitarian aid and relief, but actually being pivotal on the battlefield there as well. So actually it's had a few highlights across its career with the Air Force and all have been very different. But interestingly, where it all started for 47 Squadron was Khartoum uh, back in 1923. And 100 years later, uh, the Hercules was there again with 47 Squadron uh, to kind of round off that almost 100-year legacy of 47 Squadron, which is also... Uh, being stood down as part of this aircraft going out of service. So quite a moment in history. Um, the Hercules shares a significant history with RAF Aquatarian Cyprus as well. Oh yes, so many times have I had fun in Cyprus. <laughs> um, many things that we can't see on the radio, I'm sure. But Oh, go yeah, on. Uh, no, I definitely won't. Um, uh, th there's too many people will get into trouble even this far <laughs> out. Um, but all I'll say is Cyprus has always been a hub for the Hercules, particularly as we've been operating in uh, the Middle East for what, through, operationally for almost three decades continually. It, it has been uh, a home from home for many of us. In 1993, the MOD identified the need for a Hercules replacement, and the only substitute turned out to be another Hercules, the C-130J. That's testament to a quality product, isn't it, surely? I think it's still a quality product. It is testament to a quality product. Uh, the J brought all of those uh, advancements that were seen as limitations in the K model, as was for the Air Force. It was the E model for the everyone else in the world. It was a huge leap forward, both in technology and uh, engines, which made it more powerful and gave it a, well, you lost two crew members. The flight engineer and the navigator uh, were lost because of the improvement in technology. It made it last this long and perhaps could have lasted longer. Uh, we see other countries like uh, Germany buying more C-130Js to now supplement their A400Ms. 
And there are not many who have served in all three services over the last 50 plus years that won't have been in, been supplied by or in some way been supported by the Hercules fleet. So what do you think? Is it right to be retired now? Um, I, I think it's time to move on. And, you know, I do agree with one of my great friends, Simon Futa, who flew the airplane for many, many years. It's the end of a legacy. Um, for the Air Force. The Air Force has decided it no longer wants to have that capability. And yes, I think it is time to move on. The A400M is a great aircraft. It's not quite there yet. It has some capability gaps, which the Air Force are uh, and the government are willing to uh, take on for the time being. Do I think it's a little bit early to retire it? Of course I do. I'm a Hercules mm. fan <laughs> through and through. Um, but I, I do think it, it has come to the end of the road. But do I think it's the last time we'll see a Hercules in RAF service? No, I don't think so. I think it'll be back. Thank you very much for your time. Scotty Bateman, thank you. Thank you. Mike, truly the end of an era, isn't it? It certainly is, yes. <clears throat> and um, it, a lot of us have been in Hercules one way or another. And one trip I remember uh, was from RAF Lynham in one of the C-130Js, which was uh, then required for the Special Forces. And we went on an exercise around the West Country in Wales, dropping off things and rendezvousing and so on. And at one point, I remember very distinctly, we were flying up a valley in Wales. And if I looked across from the cockpit where I was standing behind the pilot, I could see holiday traffic on the road mm. level with us. People were open-mouthed as they saw this Hercules. And I swear, I swear, at one point, there was a camper van with people, pressed, faces pressed to the window, looking down on us oh, as we dear. thundered up the valley. And I mean, really, the, the C-130J was, was some cool aeroplane. Mike, I hope you wave to them. Thank you very much, Professor Michael Clark, for your time today. And my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. We'll be back with another SITRAP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.